You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with, with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Alex for reading. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Aaron and uh, uh, I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. It's a real joy to open up John chapter 21. It'd be great if you haven't got a chance to open up John chapter 21 in your Bible already. Please do open it up. If you're not familiar where uh, the Gospel of John is in the Bible, uh, from the start of the New Testament, we have four kind of Gospels, biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John 21 is right at the end of John's Gospel. Uh, So please have that open. Uh, If it's useful for you, there's an outline of my sermon with some of the key ideas I'm going to be speaking about on the welcome card that Tim mentioned earlier in his service leading. That's uh, via the Sundays tab on our church website. Uh, Let's pray together and ask for God's help as we look at his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, We just ask that uh, you would be present with us uh, and be powerfully at work. Uh, We know that sometimes we uh, look at your word and hear your word preached and it feels uh, dead and boring and lifeless uh, and that's a a problem with our hearts or with the person preaching it, not with your word. Uh, And so we pray, Father, that you would, uh, I pray that you would take me up by the power of your spirit, uh, that your word would Uh, be living and active and uh, come home to our hearts in a way that changes us and brings new life. Uh, And we pray, Father, for each of us uh, that we would be humbly attentive to your word, uh, able to concentrate, ready to receive your word and be changed by it. For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, I I don't know if it's sort of okay to say this as a pastor who's spent some time at Bible college and all of that. But I must admit, when I saw that I was preaching on John 21, first week back from leave, I did actually wonder, why is John 21 even in the Bible? Uh, Not because I thought there's nothing useful in John 21, it's a pretty exciting story, 
uh, or because there's nothing interesting, kind of like there is those things. But I really just wasn't quite clear on where does John 21 fit within John's gospel as a whole. Uh, If you've got John 21 open, you might flick back uh, if you need to turn a page or perhaps just scan back to the end of John chapter 20. Uh, You'll see there the very last verse of John chapter 20. John gives us his kind of summary purpose statement for his gospel. We've talked about this a fair bit on our way through John's gospel. What's John's purpose? John chapter 20, verse 31. uh, He said, I've written these things down that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, uh, and that by believing in him, you may find life in his name. So doesn't that feel like a, a fitting conclusion for John's gospel? I've written down all these things, and let me tell you why I've written them. It's so that you would believe in Jesus and find life in his name. And right before that, we had a really climactic moment as well in chapter 20, verse 28. Remember, Jesus, raised from the dead, appeared to Thomas, and Thomas cried out to Jesus in faith, in belief. He finally said, after all his doubts, my Lord and my God. Thomas is like the climactic example in John's Gospel of someone who has come to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, and has found life in Jesus' name. Doesn't that feel like a fitting climax to John's Gospel? So why have we got this random story about Jesus' disciples going fishing? Where does John 21 fit in? Why is it here? Well, I think for at least two reasons. The first reason is because John has deliberately structured his gospel in a particular way. So you might remember way back at the start of his gospel in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, John had what you might call a bit of a prologue to his gospel, kind of an introductory section, a little bit like if you go to a musical and they play the overture, Uh, The overture introduces a whole bunch of different themes musically that you're going to hear throughout the musical. Uh, That's what John did in verses 1 to 18. It was his prologue. And in his prologue, his focus was on who Jesus was and what he was up to before he took on flesh. As you might remember, in John chapter 1, verse 1, he said, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then towards the end of his prologue, he said, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. So that's kind of the purpose of the start of John's Gospel, the introduction, to tell us about who Jesus was, what he was up to before he took on human flesh. And then we come to John 21. This is his epilogue, if you like. I don't know if you've ever been reading a book and there's a little section that says epilogue, little postscript, a kind of wrap things up conclusion type thing. And the focus of John's epilogue is on what Jesus continues to do through his disciples after he's taken on a different type of flesh. Not just taking on flesh to become a human being, but now he's being raised from the dead and he's taken on glorious, powerful resurrection flesh. What's Jesus up to through his disciples after he's been raised from the dead? That's the second purpose of John 21. Because what Jesus is up to through his disciples after he's raised from the dead by the power of his spirit is mission. 
He's empowering his people to share the good news about him because he doesn't just want one Thomas to believe in him and cry out, my Lord and my God. He wants people all across the world to believe in him, to believe, as John has said, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's in believing in him that we can find life. So John 21 is all about gospel mission about the task of taking the good news about Jesus to the ends of the world, that many people would come to know Jesus. Verses 1 to 14, you could summarise that we're going to look at today as being about the secret of effective gospel mission. That's how I'm going to summarise it anyway. And verses 15 to 25, uh, 25, sorry, misspeak there, uh, are about uh, the hoped for, the kind of results of gospel mission, which we'll look at next week. It's all about true followers of Jesus, people who really have believed in Jesus. So for today, let's consider this idea. What is the secret of effective gospel mission? And I think what we see in this passage is that the secret of effective gospel mission is humbly surrendering to the risen Lord Jesus because he's eager to serve us in his power. That's my kind of summary of today's passage. The secret of effective gospel mission, humbly surrendering, handing everything over to the risen Lord Jesus because he is eager to serve us in his power. That's the secret of effective gospel mission. So we'll see if you agree with me by the end of my talk. First, let's take a look at this story in verses 1 to 14. We'll just kind of talk through the story as a whole and then we'll draw out the two points about gospel mission. So I want to say that this is a story, even though it seems like a a kind of random fishing trip that Jesus' disciples went on, it's actually a story that's designed to teach us some stuff about sharing the good news about Jesus, about gospel mission. So if you take a look... Uh, Oh, sorry, why do I say it's a story about gospel mission, even though it's about fishing? Well, because in the Gospels, fishing is really commonly a symbol uh, for people becoming followers of Jesus and also for calling other people to become followers of Jesus. So in Mark chapter 1, for example, uh, let me just find it, Mark 1, uh, verses 16 and 17, uh, Jesus calls his very first disciples. I'm sure some of you have heard these verses before. Uh, It says, Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee. Notice it's it's the same sea as in John 21. And Jesus saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting their nets into the lake, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, come, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Uh, At once they left their nets uh, and they decided to follow Jesus. This is a really common thing in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Fishing is a symbol not just of coming to follow Jesus yourself, but being caught up in Jesus' mission of casting the net of the gospel out, if you like, so that other people might be kind of dragged in in a non-kind of forceful kind of way, right, to become followers of Jesus themselves. So this is a story about gospel mission. Let's take a look at it uh, in verse 1 to start with. Uh, John says, Afterwards, Jesus appeared again uh, to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. 
We know from the previous couple of sections and right at the end of the passage in verse 14, this is the third time Jesus has appeared to his apostles in particular. Why is he doing that? He wants to prove to them that he really has been raised from the dead in three different instances. This third appearance, though, is a little bit different. It's not in Jerusalem where the other appearances were. You remember they were in the upper room in Jerusalem. Uh, This one's up north in Galilee. Uh, So it seems that uh, Jesus' apostles, many of whom were from this area, uh, up and around uh, north of Jerusalem in Galilee, uh, it seems that they've headed back there after they'd spent a week in Jerusalem uh, for the, what was called the, the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And the Passover was a part of that. You remember Jesus and his disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem shared in the Passover meal. And now for some people this feels a little bit strange in John 21. Here we are in John chapter 20. His disciples have kind of been confronted with this incredible reality that Jesus has been raised from the dead. They've seen Jesus two times already. And yet instead of going out into the world and telling everyone about the fact that Jesus is the risen Lord, what do they do? They go on a fishing trip. Like, what, what's with that? Now, on one level, that's understandable. And if you read uh, the New Testament, it is the case that Jesus' disciples uh, do need a little bit of a kick up the backside to get going with sharing the gospel. Uh, so there is an element of that. Uh, but on the other hand, they have had a, a bit of an emotional roller coaster in the last week, haven't they? Think about what they've been through just in seven days. Seven days prior, Jesus had his triumphal entry to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Oh, what a height! That was glorious, full of joy. And then in the same week, they, they had the utter despair of Jesus being arrested and tried and crucified. And then on the third day after that, on Easter Sunday, uh, everything's just flipped on its head when they see that Jesus is raised from the dead. And so you can imagine being one of Jesus' disciples. That's a fair bit to process, a fair bit to digest. So one commentator says, uh, one writer who kind of writes about this passage, uh, says, a good night's fishing in familiar surrounds was probably just what the doctor ordered. You know, the disciples just needed some time away to regroup and take stock and consider what what are all the implications of this incredible reality that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So they go back to familiar surrounds on the Sea of Galilee for a night's fishing. Uh, In verse 2, there's seven disciples listed. There's Simon Peter. He's the kind of unofficial leader of the crew. I don't know if he was appointed or if he's just kind of bold and brash and kind of pushed himself forward. But there you go. Jesus is going to appoint him next week. Uh, There's Thomas. Uh, Thomas we saw last week. He's there again, also known by his Greek name, Didymus. And then there's Nathaniel, who became a follower of Jesus way back in chapter 1. But this is the first time we've heard about Nathaniel since. And then there's James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, They were also fishermen. And then there's uh, two other disciples that, for whatever reason, John chooses not to name. Uh, But we know that one of them must be John himself. Uh, I say it must be John himself, but in verse 7, he describes himself, I think he's describing himself, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm pretty sure that's the Apostle John who's writing this gospel. 
So these, this group of seven disciples of Jesus hanging out on the sea, uh, the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Peter says, verse 3, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples say, yep, sounds like a good idea. We'll go along too. So just taking stock, we've got this group of experienced fishermen. Some of them used to make a living by fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They had great skill as fishermen. They knew these surrounds really well. They had all the tools they needed, a boat, strong nets. They knew that it was more likely to catch fish at night, so they went out at night on the Sea of Galilee. Humanly speaking, this group of seven disciples had absolutely everything that they needed to get a a big catch of fish. And yet by early in the morning, they've caught nothing. So in verse 4, John tells us uh, that early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. Uh, But the disciples didn't realise that it was Jesus. We don't really know why the disciples didn't realise it was Jesus. Um, Maybe Jesus kind of supernaturally kept them from recognising him. Maybe he wanted to reveal himself to them at a particular point, in a particular way. Uh, That's something that Jesus does in Luke chapter 24, for example. So that's possible. Uh, It's also possible that it was so early in the morning and the disciples were just so far out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee that it was just really hard to recognise who was on the shore. It was kind of a bit dull uh, in the lighting. For whatever reason, the disciples didn't recognise that it was Jesus on the shore. So Jesus cried out to them, verse 5, Friends, uh, haven't you any fish? Now, of course, Jesus knows that they don't have any fish. It's not like he's kind of not in the know about this. In fact, even the way Jesus asks the question, uh, in the kind of Greek language, uh, they decide to order their questions in a particular way, depending on what answer they're expecting. And so the Greek tells us that Jesus knows that they're going to say, no, we haven't caught any fish, Right? That's exactly, what they, uh, that's exactly what they say. So in verse 6, uh, Jesus says, as Alex has already shown us in the kids' spot, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some fish. Now, I'm not a fisherman at all, although when I was little, uh, there was a guy in the church that I was growing up uh, in who had a boat. Uh, I was growing up in Bendigo. And so for, for a phase of two or three years, I would go out with this guy fishing on Lake Epilogue, got big hauls of redfin, that was great fun. Uh, but aside from those two years uh, in primary school, I'm not a fisherman, uh, but I am told uh, that fishermen really don't take kindly uh, to being told how to do their job, uh, especially fishermen uh, who, I don't know, if you're here and you're a fisherman, you can tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, but I'm reliably informed that if, you're, if you know the territory, you know the waters, like Jesus' disciples, uh, you're not likely to listen to the voice of an unrecognisable stranger that's crying out from the shore. We don't really know why Jesus' disciples listen to this voice. Maybe they were just really desperate, really hungry, really tired, uh, conscious, uh, as Alex has shown us in the kids' spot, that breakfast was coming up and they had nothing to eat. I don't know what it was, but they did listen to Jesus. And John tells us that when the disciples did what Jesus said, uh, they were unable to haul in the net, uh, haul the net in rather, uh, because of the large number of fish. 
free. It's an incredible haul, seemingly miraculous. Which is maybe verse 7, why it's at this point that John recognises that it's Jesus. He says, it is the Lord. He says that to Peter next to him in the boat. Now, of course, I don't know if you remember in John 20, uh, Peter and John had that running race that Adam spoke about on Easter Sunday uh, when they were running to the empty tomb. Now, John was a faster runner, so he got there first. Uh, But Peter was a bit more bold and impulsive, so he was the one who went into the tomb and saw that it was empty. And it's kind of like history repeating itself here. John's the first one to realise that it's Jesus. Uh, but Peter's the one who takes action. You know, he's a man of action, Peter. Uh, and so he gets his outer garments back on. He dives straight into the, into the water, wades into the shore. He wants to be first in to see Jesus. Now, I don't know if Peter was uh, kind of a frustrating person to be friends with. Uh, because, of course, in his impulsiveness, uh, he leaves the other disciples, of course, to get the boat back in and haul in the nets. If he was my friend, I'd probably be like, come on, mate, like, just you know, pull your weight here. And later on, uh, he does pull the net in, so maybe that's, you know, he recognises that. But uh, anyway, verse 8, the nets hauled in. But take a look at verse 9. The disciples uh, get back to the shore... And what do they notice? They notice that Jesus has already set up a little campfire and he's preparing breakfast for them. Fish and bread ready for them to eat. And I think it's a pretty glorious picture of what Jesus is like, isn't it? Remembering who Jesus is at this point. I mean, he's conquered death. He's the risen Lord. He's glorious and majestic and powerful. And yet, what's he doing? Just cooking breakfast for his disciples. He knows they're hungry. And he wants them to eat and be satisfied. (coughs) Continuing to serve his disciples. It seems that after they'd eaten some of the fish and bread that Jesus had prepared, uh, Jesus says to them, hey, why don't you go and get some of the fish that you guys brought in? I don't know if the fish was... Uh, does. So if you notice in verse 11, uh, Simon Peter, uh, this is what I was saying before, I don't know if he was nominated or if he just felt guilty for not helping bring the the fish in, but anyway, he climbed back into the boat and was obviously a a pretty strong fella. He dragged uh, the net in ashore, full of large fish, 153. But even with so many fish, the net was not torn. Uh, Now, it's pretty hard to know whether there's any significance at all to that exact number of fish, 153. Uh, Some people get very excited about it. And if you read kind of people, like they write pages and pages about the different numerology and things about 153. I don't think that there's much in it. uh, But it is a reason why we can trust that this is a reliable historical account about a real event. Because, I don't know, but what would you expect a group of seasoned fishermen to do if they'd got the kind of the biggest catch of fish that they've ever got in their home surrounds. You'd probably expect at least one of them to get in the boat and actually count out how many fish are here. I think that's what's going on. This has the ring of truth of an eyewitness account of a real historical event. 
And so Jesus presumably takes some of the fish that Simon Peter brings in and he cooks it up. But notice in verse 12, it's said, like, it seems that Jesus must have noticed that the disciples are still a little bit, I don't know, a little bit shy or, or cautious about actually coming forward to eat the fish that he's prepared. So Jesus gently invites them to come, come and have breakfast. Again, I think this is a really kind of beautiful picture of what Jesus is like and he's just so loving and humble and gentle. Jesus has prepared this delicious breakfast for his disciples, but his disciples are a bit confused and they've got some doubts still. They're not quite sure what to believe. Peter, perhaps, is filled with shame. Maybe all of them, to some extent, are conscious that they've betrayed Jesus recently, running away from him. All sorts of reasons why they might have been a bit bashful to come forward and enjoy everything that Jesus has prepared for them. And Jesus gently says, don't let anything hold you back. Come forward. Eat and be satisfied. And I think that's what Jesus is like with us too. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has prepared a a wonderful salvation for us, all sorts of benefits to enjoy, wonderful intimacy with God the Father through Jesus his Son in the power of the Spirit. And yet so often we're held back from enjoying all of that. Held back by our consciousness of our doubts and our shame and our guilt our confusion, our weakness, our flaws, our failings, and we're reluctant to come forward. And Jesus gently says, come on, come and eat and be satisfied. I died on the cross for all of your weakness, all of your shame, all of your condemnation. Don't let anything hold you back. Come forward with boldness and eat, Jesus says. So that's what the disciples do. And yet they do still have some doubts. Notice the end of verse 12. Uh, None of the disciples dared ask Jesus, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. It's a bit of a confusing verse. I don't know if you... Okay, if the disciples knew it was the Lord, why do they need to ask, who are you? How does this... I think it's because Jesus' resurrection is so revolutionary kind of flips everything on its head. It seems too good to be true. These disciples know that it's the Lord, and yet they want to say, is it really you, Lord? But they're a bit unsure about saying that because they'll think, well, maybe Jesus will, you know, rebuke me or tell me, like, you have little faith or something like that. Maybe they still think that Jesus isn't as gentle and loving as he's just shown them. So in verse 13, what does Jesus do? Uh, Jesus came, he took the bread, uh, and he gave it to them. Uh, And he did the same with the fish. It's as if Jesus is saying, yes, it is me. He knows what's going on in his disciples' hearts and minds. He knows their confusion and their uncertainty, their fear. He knows that. He's saying, yes, it really is me. I know it seems too good to be true, but it is true. So let me serve you like I did in John 13 when I washed your feet. Let me serve you like I did at the Passover meal when I broke the bread and I gave it to you 
and said, this is my body which is given for you. Let me serve you, Jesus says. And it seems that it's at that moment that the disciples really get it. They know that Jesus, their risen Lord, is there to support them and serve them in his power. So there you have it. This is this story about a fishing trip that Jesus' disciples went on. The third appearance, as John says, of Jesus to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And I think it teaches us two things about gospel mission. The first thing, which we'll spend a bit more time on, the second will be much more brief. So the first is, I think it teaches us about the secret of effective gospel mission. Uh, I've sort of already touched on the fact that uh, Jesus' disciples uh, in this passage uh, go out fishing. Uh, they're experienced fishermen. Uh, they're skilled fishermen. Uh, they're fishermen who know the context of the Sea of Galilee really well, like the back of their hands. Uh, and on top of all that, they've got the right tools. You know, they've got a boat, they've got the nets. They're all set up to catch fish. And yet, they catched nothing. Why does Jesus allow this to happen? He knows all this is happening. He wants to teach his disciples something. He wants to remind his disciples of what he said to them back in John chapter 15, verse 5. Remember that passage about the vine and the branches? And in John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said to his disciples, Apart from me, you can do nothing. So in this fishing trip, it's only when the disciples kind of reach the end of themselves and their efforts to catch fish and humbly surrender to Jesus. They listen to Jesus' voice. They say, well, what the heck? Why don't we just include Jesus in this? Uh, and all of a sudden, they get this miraculous haul of fish. Right? It's humbly surrendering to Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, who's eager to serve them in his power, uh, that leads to them getting this massive haul of fish. And I think the, the lesson is that the, the same is true uh, for Jesus' disciples' efforts that they're about to engage in to share the gospel with others and for our efforts to share the gospel with others. Uh, like Jesus' disciples, we might be tempted to trust in our own experience Perhaps some of us more than others, but we might say, look, I've been a Christian for a pretty long time. I've got some runs on the board. I've read some books about evangelism. I went to some training once. I know how to answer some tough questions that people might have about Christianity. You know, I'm all set. Then you have a conversation with a bunch of people about Jesus and it just doesn't seem to go anywhere. Or we might be tempted to trust in our own knowledge of the context that we're in. So I've lived in this area for a really long time. I'm actually a part of this particular ethnic group or this cultural group. Like, I know, I understand this context. I know exactly what people need to hear to persuade them to believe in Jesus and find life in knowing him. But it just doesn't go very far. Or we might be tempted to trust in our tools. There's lots of kind of silver bullets for effective evangelism, isn't there? I've got my set of, I've got my evangelistic cards or my gospel tract. 
I've got my mission strategy, my pathway, whatever it is, you know, the seven steps to help someone become a Christian, whatever it is. We roll out our plan, our strategy, our tract, our cards, and it just doesn't really go anywhere. Now, don't get me wrong, that could be because we need better tools. We need a new set of cards or tracts or uh, we need a better understanding of our cultural context or we need a better strategy or something. Like There could be all sorts of things in our efforts that we could do better, but it could also be because we've forgotten about Jesus. We've forgotten that really apart from Jesus and him being at work in people's lives, we really can do nothing of eternal spiritual significance. Sure, we can do lots of stuff, like we could be busy, like the disciples on that boat. I'm sure they were working hard all night. But they didn't catch any fish. And the same can be true of our efforts to share the gospel. We can be busy doing lots of stuff. I know I've been busy doing lots of stuff. And sometimes I think the Lord uh, wants us to get to the end of ourselves and our own efforts so that we would kind of throw up our hands and say, Jesus, okay, I remembered again. Apart from you, I really can do nothing. And so I lift up these people that I'd love to see come to know you. I lift them up to you in prayer. I humbly surrender to you. And so actually right now, I wonder if you might... Uh, take a moment to type in your phone or write down with a pen if you still use one of those old school pen things, uh, whatever, or mentally make a note, perhaps of three people or five people or however many people come to mind uh, that are really on your heart uh, because you would really love them to find the life that comes from knowing Jesus. You'd love them to become a Christian. Why don't you take a moment to write down the names of some, uh, some specific people? I'll give you a minute to do that. I hope you've uh, written down and maybe you want to keep thinking about that. Uh, I think our gospel communities are starting back this week and so you might want to chat about it with the other people in your GC. Who are the people that you're praying for? And you can pray knowing that the risen Lord Jesus is eager to serve you in his power. That's what we see in John's gospel. John 13, uh, John tells us that the Father has put all things in Jesus' hands and so what does he do? Washes his disciples' feet. John 19, John 18, Jesus enters Jerusalem as a triumphant king. John 19, what does he do with his power? He serves his disciples by giving his life for them. John 21, he's been raised from the dead in glory and power. What does he do in John 21 but serve his disciples by cooking them breakfast? Right, the God that we meet in Jesus is the God who is eager to use his power to serve his people. And this is one of the great distinctive things about our Christian God. The false gods of this world, uh, what do they do? They demand that we serve them 
in the hope that they might one day bless us with the freedom, the life, the satisfaction that we kind of long for. So the false gods of this world, that's the god of maybe money, maybe it's the god of of status or approval or career success. These are the gods that we give our lives, kind of, we're kind of desperately enslaved to them, hoping that one day they might bless us. Uh, Of course, sooner or later we discover uh, that they're just demanding gods, not giving gods. They're enslaving gods, not serving gods. They promise lots and they deliver little. And that is not the God that we meet in Jesus. Jesus is the God who uses his power not to give us a list of demands, but to give his life. He didn't come to, uh, excuse me, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And that's what he continues to want to do. He wants us to humbly surrender to him, to lift up the names of those people that you've written down and say, Jesus, you know that I want this person to, to come to know you, but apart from, oh, I can't do anything to make that happen. Jesus pleads to be at work in their heart. A second, uh, much more briefly, that's the secret of gospel mission. Uh, we've also got the scale of gospel mission or the, the scope of gospel mission. Uh, let me just find, uh, find my spot. Uh, you'll notice uh, there in verse 6, uh, John says that uh, he and the other disciples, uh, once they got this miraculous haul, uh, they were unable to haul, uh, haul the nets in because of the large number of fish. And in particular in verse 11, if you cast your eyes down, uh, John says the net was full of large fish, 153, uh, but even with so many fish, the net was not torn. Why would John specifically mention that the net wasn't torn? Particularly because in Luke chapter 5, you can read it later on, Luke 5, 1 to 11, uh, there's another story where Jesus helps his disciples get a miraculous catch of fish. And in that instance, the hall is so big that the nets do tear, which kind of seems a little bit more spectacular, doesn't it? Like we had this massive net, it was really strong and really big, but Jesus helped us to catch so many fish that the net actually tore to bits. So why does John say, but the net wasn't torn? I think it's because of the purpose. His purpose is to remind us and remind his disciples that the gospel that they're going to proclaim to the world is not weak or fragile or or brittle in any way. The gospel is powerful to save. Just as these nets were able to catch and keep more fish than the disciples could have ever hoped or imagined, so also the gospel is able to save and keep more disciples than we could ever hope or imagine. The gospel is indeed, as Paul says in Romans 1, the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And I think we probably need to be reminded of that. I certainly need to be reminded of that. You know, I can stand up here and G up the troops and say, hey, the gospel's powerful to save. And then I can go and live my life during the week. I can pray, I can speak, I can act as if, as if hey, the gospel is powerful, but I don't really expect the gospel to be powerful enough to save this person or that person. So I think we need this reminder the scale of gospel mission is 
far bigger than we could ever hope or imagine. The picture here is of almost limitless people. More than all the stars in the sky, God said to Abraham. That's how many descendants he'd have. This is the scale of gospel mission. If only we would humbly surrender to our risen Lord Jesus, who is eager to serve us in his power. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Uh, We thank you that in coming to believe in Jesus, your son, we're not... Uh, We're not just called to trust in him or even to worship him, but we're also caught up in his great purposes in this, his world. Uh, That he's worthy of the worship of people from every tribe and language, every part of the world. Uh, And that you call us to play our part in this great mission of sharing the powerful good news of Jesus as we humbly surrender to him. And ask him to be at work in and through us uh, that more people might come to believe in Jesus than than we could ever hope or imagine. Uh, Please, Father, help us uh, to admit that uh, apart from Jesus, your son, we really can do nothing. Help us to think carefully about how we go about sharing the gospel, uh, but not to think that we can somehow bring in a big haul uh, without the help of Jesus, your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.